0: All right, well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons, where we've been looking at the major doctrines of our faith, we've been looking at the doctrine of the law of God, and today we are briefly going to be looking at the ninth commandment, which is, Exodus 20 verse 16, "You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." Now, as has been the case with each of the Ten Commandments, here we have a specific prohibition or requirement that represents a wide range of other sins of the same species. Each of the commandments expresses a moral principle that extends much broader than just the one sin that is explicitly mentioned. But before we get into what the general moral principle is here in the Ninth Commandment, let's consider the prohibition that is explicitly mentioned. What does it mean to bear false witness? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, that kind of sounds like court language, trial language. Well, that's exactly what it's referring to. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we read, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 17 starting in verse 2 we read if there is found among you within any of your towns that the lord your god has given you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the lord your god and transgressing his covenant and has got, gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which i have forbidden and it is told you when you hear of it then you shall inquire diligently And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst." And in Numbers 35, verse 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And then when we get to the New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. And then, of course, there's the scripture that our pastor's been spending some time in recently. Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you and go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then there is 1 Timothy 5, verse 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, after reading all of that, it seems fairly obvious what's going on here. And yet people do some really strange things with this law of two or three witnesses. For example, there was a book written years ago wherein the authors were trying to argue a point about knowledge, an epistemological point, that the Bible, both the Bible and science are needed to establish truth. And they appealed to this principle of two or three witnesses. They write, "God tells his people through Moses how to know something is true." And then they quote Deuteronomy 19:15, "A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses." They further write that even Jesus appealed to the testimony of many witnesses to establish the legitimacy of his message. Jesus did not say, believe me, because I told you to believe me. That would have been out of character with the biblical test of truth. The Christian faith never calls for faith in spite of the evidence or faith without any evidence. Jesus said his testimony about himself alone could not establish the truth of his teaching, end quote. Now, I don't have time to expose the problems there, especially the idea that Jesus' testimony alone could not establish truth. But just know that this is how some people twist these texts. If you Google the words two or three witnesses along with words like truth, you'll find a lot of people arguing like this to justify some sort of uh, empirical epistemology. And I've seen others do this with this principle. They'll come to a point in their life where they'll take issue with a pastor, an elder, or with a church in general, instead of going to the elders to address the issue, they'll go and talk to everybody else in the community, looking for people who might have similar concerns. And then when they find those people, they say, ah, look, I've got two or three people here who've had issues with this pastor, or with this church. This proves that I'm right. And then they'll just leave the church. And in their mind, that's all that's, that was needed. Hey, if I can just find a couple people to agree with me, then I'm right. You might be amazed at how many people think that way. We've had people here do it. I see it all the time on Facebook. But what is sad and mind-boggling in all this is that apparently these people have forgotten the Ninth Commandment. Apparently they are oblivious to the very reality that the Ninth Commandment explicitly warns us about, that there is such a thing as a false Witness. The fact that you can find a handful of people to go along with you doesn't settle a matter. Earlier, I read from Deuteronomy 19 concerning the law of witnesses. I only read verse 15, which was a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And for many people, that's where it stops, right there. The law of witnesses stops right there but let's go to the very next verse to see what it has to say which is directly tied to the ninth commandment verse 16 if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days the judges shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do what? Give him a dirty look, he slap on the hand, say, all right, go your way. No, verse 19. And you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So we see that God guarded against false accusations by requiring two or more witnesses. But even then, it doesn't stop there because witnesses can lie. That's explicitly what the ninth commandment is telling you not to do. And because there is that possibility, God also warned that, hey, before you open your mouth to accuse somebody, understand this. If it's found out that you are accusing falsely, then whatever punishment was meant to be done to the one falsely accused, that shall be done to you. And that even included death. Gee, do you think God takes this stuff seriously? Do you think God cares about people's reputations? Do you think God just winks and giggles at those who sit around the table gossiping and speculating about other people? Do you think God is pleased with those who instead of going directly to their brother or sister to deal with issues, go running their mouths behind their backs to others who have no idea what's going on? Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And then verse 9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. In Exodus 23, verse 1, we read, Do not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit." I point out this verse because notice here it says you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. This is why I said earlier that just having a handful of people agree with you doesn't settle a matter. Even if you do get two or three quote unquote witnesses to go along with your rhetoric, it doesn't necessarily prove that you're right. It is just as easy for many people to do wrong and pervert justice as it is for one person to do it. And so the quality and integrity of the witnesses is to be considered and examined as well. Beloved, take that to heart. Let that be a warning to us. If you're just bent on finding fault with someone and your accusations are weak, Don't think that just because you're able to find a handful of people to sit around and talk with you and speculate and gossip, that that means that you're right. Many, points out Exodus 23, will often rise to pervert justice. So don't don't join them in that. Well, for sake of time, I'll stop there and uh, commenting on the specific prohibition Against being a false witness. Now let's consider the broader principle of this commandment. Larger Catechism, question 144 What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The answer to the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, and the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth. And from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth, and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocence, a ready receiving of a good report and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers flatterers and slanderers love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth keeping of lawful promises studying and practising of whatsoever things are true honest lovely and of good report and then what are the sins forbidden all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbours as well as our own especially in public jud- uh, judicature giving false evidence Subboarding false witnesses, uh, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, a rash, harsh, impartial, censoring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious, boasting, thinking, or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, and neglecting such things there is a good report in practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. In short, shorter catechism, uh, question 77, it requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness-bearing. And it forbids whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. So we have emphasized in the last few commandments what each principle is rooted in to secure our right understanding and grounds for these principles. We saw that in the sixth commandment, life is rooted not in some absolute intrinsic right, but as a gift from God granted within the parameters of a covenant and our obligation to him. We saw in the seventh commandment that our bodies are not our own, that we belong to God and we are to glorify him with our bodies. And then we saw in the eighth commandment that stealing is wrong, not because it just seems like a bad idea and you might get caught, but because God is sovereign and owns all things. And what we possess, we do as stewards. And so now here we are at the ninth commandment. What is the foundation of this commandment? What is it rooted in? Is bearing false witness wrongs because it seems well, it's maybe a, a bad idea to might get people in trouble. Is there something deeper to consider? Well, I think the foundation is this it is the faithfulness and truthfulness of God in whom we are made in his image. Peter Craigie writes quote, To bring false witness against a fellow member of the covenant community involved lying and various forms of deception. It would be motivated by self-interest. The result, if successful, would be the false punishment of a neighbor, and even if unsuccessful, it could cast doubt by implication on the character of that neighbor. The focus of the commandment is thus again on the matter of personal human relationships, and it emphasizes the integrity and honesty required within the community of God. And though the immediate context of the commandment was in the sphere of legal process, the implications apply to the activities of daily life a God of faithfulness who did not deal deceitfully with his people required of his people the same transparency and honesty in personal relationships, end quote. So I believe that's your foundation. That is your root. You are to guard your speech because what you do with your speech testifies to God's glory and God's honor. And it reveals your heart and where you stand in relationship to God recall what James wrote James 4 verse 11 do not speak evil against one another brothers the one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges of the law but if you judge the law you are not a doer of the law but a judge there was only one lawgiver and judge he was able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor Notice here that for James, when we speak evil of another person, we speak evil against the law. We judge the law, thereby placing ourselves in a position of authority. But as James points out, this role of lawgiver and judge belongs to God and God alone. Now, it's important to keep in mind he's not condemning all forms of discernment in relation to other people, but he's speaking of evil Judging, judging unrighteously, being a false and malicious witness. Beloved, what you do with your speech says a lot about your understanding of God, his law, his, your relationship to him and his authority, and your relationship to him personally. Hoczema writes, quote, The law of perfect liberty requires of us, even as it is principally written in our hearts, that we love the neighbor in his name and therefore speak the truth to him and about him in love for God's sake. The principle of the ninth commandment, therefore, is that God calls us to speak the truth in love for his name's sake and to his glory as well as for the love and well-being of our neighbor. The truth that you and I are to speak is directly tied to God and the truth that he has revealed. It's not tied to our made-up versions of truth. We are not the ultimate judge. We are not God. We are in no position to just make things up, creating our own little delusional world that we then drag other people into. I cannot express strongly enough to you the damage that is caused by not guarding our speech. It is exactly as James described. It sets on fire the entire course of life. It destroys reputations. It destroys churches. It destroys careers. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. You name it. And as James says, it is set on fire by hell. Speaking of which, as I've pointed out in the past, it's interesting to note that the Greek word that is translated as slanderers, for example, in 1 Timothy 3.11, is the Greek word diabolos. There, Paul writes that the wives of deacons must be dignified and not diabolos, that is, slanderers. This same Greek word is used by Peter in 1 Peter 5 to actually name the devil. Most of your translations read, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, the diabolos, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone. Devour Satan is the diabolos, the slanderer. Which leads me to my closing remarks. Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, the diabolos, and your will is to do your father's desires. Beloved, as I've stated before, earlier, there's a deeper issue here at stake in truth-telling and lying, meaning that it's directly tied to God, to his word, to his law, and your relationship to him. And know for certain that those who make this prejudicing of truth are of their fathers, the diabolos, and like him will perish Accordingly, it is said in Revelation 21:8 that all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. That same eternal fire, fire prepared for the devil and his angels, that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 25, is the same eternal fire that all liars will be cast into in the final judgment. Being that those who make a practice of lying against the truth, and have not repented of their sins and turned to Christ, are of their father the devil, the slanderer. And so Thomas Watson writes, Oh, tremble at this sin. A perjured person, that is a person who willingly spreads falsehood, is the devil's excrement. He is cursed in his name and seared in his conscience. Hell gapes for such a windfall, End quote. And so the next time you're tempted to sit around the table, and speculate and gossip about others. Think upon these things. Whether you're the one initiating it or the one who's being approached, stop and immediately ask yourself what your speech reveals to others about God, about His glory, and what you are indicating to others about the priority of God and His Word and truth in your life.